I'd be preaching this morning or not, and this is a topic, this is a text of Scripture that I've been wanting us to look at and consider as a church, and as I had the opportunity, we're not in our normal study of Galatians, I thought that this would be the opportunity for us to look to Matthew chapter 18. Those of you that know Matthew 18 and you know that text, you know that it's thrust or its main attention is toward church discipline, the accountability that takes place within the church. And some of you might be asking why the topic of church discipline today, it is New Year's Day, I don't know if that would be the most apropos moment, but why are we talking about church discipline? And I think as one of your pastors, one of your elders, it's important for us to recognize that it's better for us as a church to talk and to be learning, to be building these foundations now than it would be for us while we're in the trenches of a situation related to church discipline to be trying to sort these things out and figure them out. So this is a uh, wellness visit, if you want to call it that. This is one of those moments where we recognize there isn't a problem, there's nothing anticipated, we're not preparing for something that we're aware of. We're trying to be wise and recognize that we need to be fortified in these truths because these are the kind of things that ways a church almost certainly will be dealing with. We live in a culture that is adverse to accountability. We live in a culture that enjoys being free, that is accountable to no one. And this prerogative is not unique uh, to just our culture. Uh, It's not unique to a particular political party. It's not unique to those to tend to both either social or liberal or conservative perspectives. It's not particular to a particular age group. It's not dictated by your economic status. I think the primary reason that we as a people struggle and dislike accountability just fundamentally comes down to our sin nature. It comes down to the fact of who we are. It's not just that we, are, that we do sin, but it's our very nature. We are sinners by nature. And we also know, and I believe this to be true, it's that sin nature... And then the world and the culture that we live in that fosters or stirs up this mentality that, quite frankly, has a mindset that says, I don't answer to anyone. In the particular culture and the community we live in, we might call it, I hope I'm not stepping on toes, I'm not trying to, we might call it sisu. Uh, Maybe in another part of a culture, another time, we would say, don't tread on me. But we don't want to be accountable to anyone. A rebellious heart a heart that is unwilling to be submissive as God designs has never been good for any of us. It's never been God's plan. We see accountability spelled out all throughout Scripture. This isn't something that's unique to a particular time or era or dispensation, we might say. This is something that we see from beginning to end throughout Scripture. Just to give a couple really quick citations going back to the very beginning. When we think about this idea of accountability, we recognize God's authority even in the garden, in the perfect creation, the Eden that we all desire. God gave instruction regarding the tree of life, or excuse me, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were clear consequences for disobedience. God made it clear, you ready, we're using this word in this context, there would be an accountability, you would give an account If they trespassed against him, to eat of this tree, you will surely die. We can look and see this even developed further in the Ten Commandments. 
noteworthy is the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is the first commandment that we would identify that is addressing this horizontal plane. The first four are related to man's relationship to God. Now we enter into this relationship that we share to one another. And the fifth commandment, as we look at this and we consider this, is honor your father and mother. As parents, we often look at this command as God's mandate toward children. As parents, there's a little bit of us that honestly say, I hope they're listening right now, right? But we have to recognize there's another side to this equation when we think about that commandment. Practicing both discipline and accountability is also a duty for us as parents. We have a responsibility in that on the other side of the equation. When practiced rightly, discipline, accountability, is an expression of our love. It's an expression of love. Even, this is very important, even when the recipient, whether that be a child or someone else, doesn't view it that way. Their perspective of the accountability, their perspective of the discipline, when practiced rightly in love, doesn't change the reality that this is necessary. It's Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12 that says this, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. It's Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 that says this, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but but whom love excuse me, but he whom he loves, I'll start that again, but he whom loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, here's what's interesting. We take this to the New Testament concept of this, and this is the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12 actually is citing or directing us right back to some of these passages from Proverbs that I just read. This isn't talking about the accountability or the discipline of the local church or on this horizontal plane. This is the discipline of the Lord toward his children. But listen to it in light of what we just read from Proverbs. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? By the way, he's talking about Proverbs. That's the exhortation he's talking about. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I want to be really careful as I say this. What's being cited here, particularly in verse 11, is regarding the discipline of our heavenly Father toward his children in this realm. The way that he grows us, that he sanctifies us, that he trains us up in righteousness. I want to say, 
And I think it's correct that there's certainly correlation in the purpose for discipline and how that relates to these earthly relationships that we share in the way that we are accountable and we discipline one another, whether that be in the home, and we know we're going to be talking about the way that that relates to the church relationship as well. We all know that any and all discipline in this world, I hope you hear this, all discipline in this world is tainted by sin. Always. Even when I, as a father, as a parent, have participated and taken this role on of discipline toward my children and done it in the best way that I know how, because I am a sinner, it taints the way I discipline. It has a role in the way that I discipline. And too often, in a sinful world, we know that this is true, that not only is it tainted by sin, but discipline often extrapolates and grows out to the point that it becomes abuse. That's just a reality. I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying that it's good. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm just saying it's a reality. But there's an overreaction to this problem, and it's the overreaction that condemns all discipline as being equally wrong because a little bit's broken or we generalize, so we say, therefore, discipline never is appropriate. I have heard people, parents in this church, struggle with saying, I love my children. How can I discipline them? Those are incongruous statements. We discipline them because we love them. And yet we wrestle with the fact that because we're sinners, we break this. I confess, I know I have disciplined my children in anger and sin. I know I have in the past. And we know that this is always going to be something we're going to struggle with. But we would never abolish any other mandate from God based on our culture's view of it. Does that make sense how I'm saying that? Just because our culture says discipline is not appropriate because it's been tainted, it's been messed up as a result of sin, it turns into abuses, we would look at this and we would say that, that of course, there wouldn't be any other instruction from the Word of God that we'd say, well, yeah, but it gets messed up because of our sin, so therefore we'll just throw the baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't work. Just because it's difficult to do well doesn't mean we abandon the ship and forsake God's instruction. Our objective, whether we're disciplining our children or the things that are happening in our culture or whether we're talking about the discipline and accountability that takes place within the local church, is always to glorify God. So whether you eat or drink and whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's a foundational principle that we need to build off of as we consider these ideas. We do it all to the glory of God. We've done a fantastic job of centering our hearts on that as we've worshiped and we've sang this morning. It's all to the glory of God as God is glorified in His church. church. So here's the point. Here's what we're getting to as we're, again, building this foundation. Though our hearts reject accountability to others as a result of our sin nature, and our world tells us that discipline is wrong, the Bible tells us that both accountability and and discipline in the local church are good. They give hope, that it gives hope, excuse me, and truly are an expression of God's love. Qualifier. When practiced His way for His purposes. Okay? So when we hear this idea and we talk about this, we're talking about a mutual responsibility that we share together as fellow members of this local church. Foundational principle. 
Church discipline does not work outside the confines of the membership of the local church. We can be accountable to brothers and sisters in Christ who are non-members in some sense, but what we're looking at in Matthew 18 completely breaks down without this covenant, this binding relationship that we enter into willfully as members of the local church. We have a duty to one another as fellow members of this church. When we host a membership class here at Bethany Baptist, or we are interviewing or conducting a membership interview with a candidate toward membership when we're considering ones that way, we are very intentional at this point in the history of Bethany Baptist Church to communicate to them the importance of this relationship that we share with one another. And one aspect we are very clear on is specifically talking about this candidate or these people who are considering membership at Bethany and their willingness to make themselves accountable to this local church. Not merely its leaders, but to this group of people who have covenanted together that we are binding ourselves together in this walk toward eternity in this world. We are accountable to one another in this relationship as the local church in this discipline process. When we enter into membership as a local church, we make a binding, covenantal agreement to one another. A commitment to hold each other accountable as we together seek to walk and grow in Christ-likeness. Here's the thing that's important. When we do this rightly, correctly, it's always going to be tainted by our sin. We are doing this with the purpose of expressing love toward one another as Christ designed for the local church. Matthew chapter 18. I want to encourage you to look to this text. I could project it, but this is the text we're going to be looking at. I hope you have your Bibles. Maybe if there's someone who's a guest this morning, I recognize because this is a holiday Sunday, uh, we may have more guests than normal, and we don't always preach on church discipline if you're visiting our church this morning. Um, But if you are here and you don't have a Bible, maybe you can look on with someone near you. This is what Matthew 18 says, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, just a comment. Most people, when they think about church discipline, they stop the discussion right there. It continues on into verse 18. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the word of God. As difficult as it is, as painful as it is, as unpleasant as it is to talk about, as unpopular as this kind of message it is, this is the Word of God. I want to take just a minute before we actually work through what's outlined here very plainly in Matthew chapter 18 to just build five observations. These are more foundations leading us to Matthew 18. I think they'll make sense as we build them out. 
The first thing we have to recognize is before we ever into this, enter into this process as a church or individuals, before we enter into this process, the first thing we need to do is we need to remove the plank from our own eyes. This is super important. It is hypocritical. It is inconsistent. Jesus speaks very plainly about this, that if we are looking and and fixated on the sin in a brother's life and we are unwilling to deal with the same kind of sin in our own life, we are hypocrites. And it's very plainly stated in Matthew chapter 7 as Jesus addresses this issue. He says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Some would look at a text like this, which is immediately preceded by a section that talks about judge not lest you be judged, right? It's the same text. It's the same section of scripture that talks about this. And they would say that this disqualifies. This means we're never to judge one another. We're never to examine each other. It's not what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 5. If you have it there in front of you, it is projected right behind you. What does he say? First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The foundational principle in this point here is before we address and we confront the sin of a brother or sister in Christ, we need to be ready to examine ourselves, to do a self-examination, to deal with the sin in our own life. We need to be ready to do that. The next foundational point that we need to recognize as we see this is notice the personal pronouns when you look at Matthew 18. I think you probably still have that text in front of you. In six verses, there are 12 personal pronouns, you or your. And when we look at the majority of these, not every single one of them, but almost every one of them in the language are very plainly stated in the imperative or the command kind of a structure. Verse 18, it says, truly I say to you, again I say to you, these are imperatives, these are instructions that are commands. And what's important to recognize is even though this is personal, there's also a corporate nature to this statement. This is the Lord's command, imperative speech. In the timeline that he gives these words, commands to the future church. The church is yet to be established in in Acts chapter 2. This is instruction of how the church is to correct and to restore a brother or sister who in sin. Now, Here's what's important when we see this foundational point. Too many ignore the you and the your in this text, and they think that the process of church discipline is relegated to elders or pastors of the church, to church leadership. This is something they do, but we as church members, we don't have to deal with this. Nowhere in the text is this implied or communicated. This is our responsibility as fellow members of the household of God. This is a process that begins with a personal duty. And it is a progression. It moves forward in step by step, which we're going to delineate in just a minute, that, that it moves forward that more and more people become a part of this if necessary. And so often it's necessary that as it becomes more and more corporate in nature, church leadership becomes involved in this. But this doesn't start, it's not instigated, it's not concluded by church leadership. This is for us. And as we often joke and bring a little bit of levity to it, but it's true, 
This is for all y'all. This is for us. This is plural, us together. Number three, this is a system that is founded in the Old Testament Jewish law. And what I want to point out to you, even though some would say, okay, so we're looking at the Old Testament, the point behind this is, this is judicious, this is just, this is a fair system in which God established for his people in the Old Testament. It says in Deuteronomy 19.15, and by the way, if you read all of chapter 19, it talks so much about this, but this would just be a, a quick snippet from that, that these are principles founded from a process uh, that was understood by the people that Jesus was addressing in Matthew 18. So Deuteronomy 19 says this, A single witness will not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Notice how all-inclusive this is. It's very broad and repetitively very broad. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall, shall a charge be established. And the point behind this is this is intended to protect the innocent. This is intended to be judicious, to be just, to be fair. It's interesting that this exact principle is applied to our North American, to the United States, in our judicious uh, civil process. And the fact of the responsibility of witnesses and and the evidence of two or three witnesses are are a, a charge that are necessary. We build off of the same principle. He takes this principle in Matthew 18 and says, so is true within the local church when you hold one another accountable to sin. Number four, we are not to be petty. We're not to be petty in the process that we're looking at here in Matthew 18. Discipline is a personal duty that expresses love. And this love is to be both active and passive. You might say that differently. I was struggling to think of a right way to communicate that. Both active and passive. Actively, we hold each other accountable because we love each other. And we desire to see each other restored and made righteous, sanctified to become more like Christ. That's active. There's a passive side of this as well. On the other side, and this is under the umbrella of being petty, because I love you, I choose to oversee or to look past your sin. I have planks in my own eye. I have sin in my own life. And so therefore, there is an appropriateness to say, you know what, I recognize that we stumble in sin. There's mistakes. There are sins that we make. There are unwise words that are spoken. There are things that we do to each other unintentionally at times that hurt, that harm, that is a sin against one another. And it is good for us to look past those and to recognize we can do that. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. I often qualify this verse that it's misquoted, and we often will look at this in talking about the kind of love that Christ has toward us and covering our sins. That's not the context. This is about the relationship we have with each other. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, passionately, with a fervor, intensely, since love covers a multitude of sins. Paraphrase, don't be so petty about judging each other's sins. Because we love each other, we can look past so many of these offenses toward one another. Number five. Last foundational point, the purity of the church. 
I'd encourage you, if you want to be a scholar, if you want to be a Berean, if you want to search scriptures out on your own independently today, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a parallel passage to Matthew 18. Many would describe 1 Corinthians 5 as almost a case study related to Matthew 18. It's the implementation, it's the action of the church of Corinth that should be doing what Matthew 18 is telling us to do. And I qualify that because it's important. The instruction of 1 Corinthians 5 is not what the church is doing regarding church discipline. It's Paul saying, why aren't you doing Matthew 18? That's important. But it is a parallel passage. It says this in 1 Corinthians 5. I think, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians 5. I don't have this projected. It's a longer section. We're just going to cherry pick some sections out of this. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual... In- Read that again, slowing down a little bit. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Do I need to give explanation? And as we recognize and see the sin that's here, Paul is confronting the church of Corinth and saying to them as a local body of believers, members bound together, what in the world are you doing? There is a member among you that is participating in an act of sexual immorality, probably with a stepmother, and you're tolerating it. Even in a culture of Corinth, a pagan, immoral culture like Corinth, even they shake their heads at this. But you're okay with it. That's the context. Look down to verse 11. There's so much more that he says. I admit, I'm totally cherry-picking. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And again, just simply pointing out the fact that this was a responsibility that the church of Corinth needed to take, but were resistant to do it. We don't know why. We don't know why. We don't know if there was cultural pressure upon them, if if it was just simply too difficult, if they didn't want to have the confrontation. We don't know why. But Paul plainly instructs instructs them, this is necessary. This is the qualification that I want to give us under the purity of the church here, this, this point that's behind me. Matthew 18 makes it very clear that the intention of church discipline is restorative, It's bringing a brother back. It's to bring them to righteousness, to sanctify them. But there's also an implication of 1 Corinthians 5 that also talks about the fact that when we don't do this, the church is not holy or set apart among the people around them. And that's a necessary distinction that needs to be made as well, though we're not going to spend much time talking about that anymore this morning. 1 Corinthians, no, Matthew 18. Four steps from Matthew 18. This process given by our Lord to the church follows a clear and simple structure. A process that is 
unavoidably clear. Let me explain what I mean by that. There are times that I come to texts of Scripture, and I'm trying to figure out how to structure, how to outline it, how to bring it to you in a manner that is understandable and clear, that, that outlines it in a way that makes a simple and clear outline or structure. Anyone can look at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18 in particular, and there is just an outline that pops right in your face. It's unavoidably clear. Yet what's interesting about this is as clear as this process is and as unquestionable the teaching that Jesus has, this teaching is frequently ignored or altered by the church. Do you hear that? As clear as this teaching is, it is frequently altered or ignored by the church. This is to you, that's Matthew 18's word, you, this is to us, to all y'all, to we individually as, individually as corporate members together, when we ignore or alter this process, we are in sin as the church. When we ignore or alter this process, we are in sin. In sin. And yet, local churches, every day throughout history, will frequently ignore or alter this process. Here's your outline. Step one. It's found in verse 15. Step one says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We often like to say this, as church leaders, as the elders, and as we do membership kind of uh, interviews and discussions, talking about the context I mentioned a few minutes ago, church discipline, church accountability should be happening in the pews among the relationships that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of this church. It should be happening all the time. Not in petty ways, but in meaningful ways all the time, and nobody else even knows it happened. It's very important. Church discipline starts with two people, and the text qualifies it, making it very clear, you and him alone. When you have started into this process and there is sin between you and another brother or brother and sister in Christ, or you're aware of unrepentant sin in a brother's life and you're concerned for them and you want to address it, and you have this conversation privately, and, that's, and the Holy Spirit works in the midst of that, their conscience is pricked, they're repentant of this sin, no one else even knows to needs to know that conversation happened. And you've won your brother. To God be the glory. That's the purpose for church discipline. When there is sin between two members, there's only two people who need to know about it, and no one else. One brother or sister should in love approach the one who is in sin and confront the sin, go and tell him his fault, you alone. Now, when this conversation happens, there's many different subcategories, but there's potentially three outcomes that are going to come of this kind of conversation. The first outcome, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. He's listened to you. He's repented of his sin. You're right. I am in sin. There might be a a, a subcategory that would come to that. Brother, will you help me? 
I'm struggling. I can't do this alone. To God be the glory in that as well. (coughs) Excuse me. Another potential outcome. It is very possible, and I think we negate this idea. It is very possible when that private conversation happens that there is a legitimate explanation for what you perceived as sin. Do you hear that? You might perceive something is going on. You might see something and have misunderstood it. And it's legit to go talk to your brother and sister about that. But after this conversation, you may learn that there's something going on or there's something that was misunderstood. There was a misunderstanding. You know what? If that's the case, and that's the understanding you walk away from as you've had this conversation, you've still gained your brother. That's still good. That's the outcome you desire. This is the primary objective of this process, to gain your brother. To put this in the negative, the purpose for church discipline, for accountability among one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, Matthew 18, it's not revenge. It's not your personal vindication. It's not about power. It's not about hate. The objective is love, gaining your brother to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this objective is all about restoration. It's about reconciliation. It's about sanctification, growing in holiness. We know Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A translation I memorized it many years ago because they heal, right? The third possible outcome third possible outcome is he or she, your brother or sister in Christ, will not repent. None of your business. Get out of my face. I don't have to listen to you right now. If you have correctly approached this brother or sister in what is clearly unrepentant sin, and they will not respond, they will not repent, they're not willing to work or take steps toward correction in this, then we need to take a step to the next point in the outline. Step two. We see that in verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Do you remember Deuteronomy 19? That's Deuteronomy 19. This step takes the process out of the confidentiality of two people, just the two of you alone, And it brings it into a larger scope of witnesses. But this isn't about gossip. It's not about humiliating the person. This is ideally about bringing witnesses for protection of the innocent. This is about the fact of establishing what is necessary in order that the sin can be established, proven, or proven right or wrong. These witnesses ideally should be ones who have a first-hand knowledge of the original sin, we might say, if possible. It's possible that those people don't exist. If they don't, that's not necessary, but that's ideal. These witnesses are to come along with you to observe this individual's response. When person A goes to person B and confronts their sin, how are they responding? Is there evidence of repentance? They also add a level of protection to the one being accused. Again, Deuteronomy 19. Uh, How were they confronted by person A? What was the tone of the confrontation? 
Is person A coming in love with the purpose of winning his brother? Are they looking to get vindicated? Are they looking to win, to crush this other person? What's their motivation? Are these allegations, these accusations that are being raised, are they legit? So we think of these witnesses coming and being on person A's team, not necessarily. In a sense, they're coming as neutral participants. Uh, They're coming to say, is this true? Is this valid? Is this legitimate? This larger group does do something else on the other hand. And it does add a weight or a gravity, as I like to say, to the circumstance. What may be dismissed by person B as person A comes and brings this charge, what may be dismissed because it's just you saying this against me, But if there are two or three others along with him and they're saying, no, you are in sin, brother. Your response is wrong. You're unwilling to to take steps. You're unwilling to to address these issues. That's important. And it adds a weight. It adds a gravity to what's going on. Again, I'm going to say this lots. The implied desired outcome of step two is the same as step one. It's to win your brother. It's restorative. It's sanctifying. It's holiness. It's the glory of Christ. It's not about us if we want to say it that way. Now, I want to add just a really quick side note because this is frequently misunderstood and I think it's important. And there are are even things that have happened in our larger community in the church that this apply to. Some of you are going to understand what I'm talking about. According to 1 Timothy 5, This process of church discipline is different when it's addressing the sin of an elder or a pastor. The first step in this process is bypassed. It starts immediately with the second step. And some might ask, why is that true? Why would that happen? It's because the the recognition of those who are in leadership are constantly subject to to confrontations and different people's opinion, to to petty charges, quite frankly. Now, when we see this, what's really recognized is the fact that, that it doesn't mean that an individual who's a brother or sister in Christ or a member of this church can't come to me personally and say, Brian, I'm concerned about something in your life. I would welcome that. But what we recognize is this accountability, this discipline process toward a pastor or an elder, it doesn't start with step one. If we want to say it this way, it starts with step two. It starts with a group of individuals, two or three witnesses saying, it's clear there's a problem in the sin life of this individual, this pastor, this elder in our life. Uh, When they're found guilty, when this pastor is found guilty of sin, Uh, let me read that again. When they're found guilty, disqualified, unrepentant, there is a far greater accountability that takes place also. There's something very different that takes place in the church when an elder is found guilty of unrepentant sin. We've talked about it a bunch, now we've got to read it. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Do not admit a charge against an elder except under the, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's a level of protection. There's also a higher level of accounting. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Hear what that's saying? Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. 
In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. So there is a far more severe consequence, we might say, for an elder who is unrepented or found guilty in sin. And part of what we have to recognize here is an elder may be repentant of sin, but it's also possible that even as they repent, they may have disqualified themselves. They may have put themselves in a position where they are still a member of the church or they still have fellowship with the church, but they can no longer serve in that role of elder or overseer. This is all a part of what's happening here in 1 Timothy 5. That was a sidebar going back to Matthew 18. Step three, I'm going to confuse you, Subpoint A. First part of verse 17 says this, if he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. Who are them? The person A and the two or three witnesses. At this point, the individual has been confronted and refused to repent of clear sin. He or she has been accused by a single brother. He has now been witnessed, or this action has been now witnessed by two or three more. And now there is a need for public accountability before the members of the local church. This is important. We're talking about the local church and the members who have covenanted themselves to this kind of accountability. Within this step, there is still protection for the accused. It doesn't mean that they're now just found guilty. It means there's a higher level of accountability again. It's still possible that the preceding witnesses are wrong or they're unjust. Let's face it. If you have a charge against someone else and you think there's someone else's sin in your life and you confront that and they don't do anything about it, you could pretty easily find two or three other people who would gang up with you, right? This text is clearly telling us that what's going on is when you bring it to the larger body, there's still a higher level of justice that's going to take place. It is possible that the preceding witnesses were wrong or unjust in their accusations. By going to the church membership, there's either a greater accountability, or excuse me, there is a greater accountability for both parties. Hypothetically, this process could result in the innocence of the accused the one, and the one who initiated this process actually being the one who's found needing to be accountable. Hypothetically, that's possible. If it's found that these charges were incorrect or that they were stirred up or false accusations, but with the assumption that there is validity to the accusations, there is to be a clear witness and testimony regarding the particular sin. This became really clear to me this week as I was studying it and reading other sources and understanding it. Who's to give this testimony? The witnesses are. In my opinion, this does need to fall under church leadership, under their lead, but at the very same time, the witnesses are there to give testimony to what they have witnessed. And so, in some fashion, those witnesses are publicly, uh, under the order of the church, giving testimony of what they have witnessed and the accusations and the validity of these charges. And when they give these accounts, sometimes the matter of sin is so public, the detail of these accusations is less critical. 
but in many cases, because, uh, but in many cases, because this is a matter of private sin, maybe most people in the church aren't even aware of what's going on, maybe nobody is, this step needs to be made very clear. I think churches err in this. They veil or they make the accusations cryptic. That's not what the text is telling us. That I don't think we need to like defame someone or destroy them, but there needs to be a clear documentation and testimony of what the nature and the actions of these sins are. Why? Because now we're doing this. We're doing this together, and the responsibility of the church corporately as members is significant. The church is being called on to take a significant action that actually has eternal ramifications. We'd better make sure that when we are voting to make this process go forward, that we understand what we're voting on and we're not just raising our hand because that's what everyone else did in the pews next to us. We need to understand these things. It should not be handled lightly. Step three, B. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I think what is again implied here, assuming there's guilt, assuming the church agrees and is unified in the fact that there's a sin problem here and he's not repentant, recognize the weight of that. If this individual will not listen, he is unwilling to be accountable. He is unwilling to repent. The membership now has a duty to investigate, to pray, and to seek out the unrepentant member in sin, calling him to repentance. Remember, our goal is still to gain our brother. But after a reasonable amount of time, the membership is called upon to vote to remove this member from membership. We have to qualify that in a minute if, in fact, the charges are valid to the best of our understanding. This is important regarding our church polity. This vote is a part of our biblical, in my opinion, Baptistic church polity. We are a church that is elder-led, but member or congregationally ruled. Each member of the local church bears a personal duty. If you are a member of this church... This is a responsibility you bear. There's something huge about this. This fundamentally comes down, hear this, to the individual priesthood of the believer. And as that is lived out in our corporate relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church, the visible church. We together, yet as individuals, are voting to remove this one from membership. This is not just simply saying you're out of the club. It's not what this is. This removal is a declaration regarding this individual's salvation. Do you hear that? This vote is a declaration regarding their salvation. It's a Roman Catholic term, but it's because they've commandeered it. This individual has been excommunicated, cut off from the benefits of membership. We get this word, excommunicated, because of its relationship to communion. 
We're cut off from the ordinances, the fellowship, the, the blessings of membership. Doesn't mean this individual can't attend the church anymore. Doesn't mean that he can't interact with people from our church anymore. Doesn't mean when you run into him in the aisles of Walmart that you have to turn around and pretend like they didn't exist. That's not what this text is saying. It means that their heart attitude toward unrepentant sin in their life is so severe that they have proven to us that they are an unbeliever. The one who we viewed as a brother and sister in Christ is not who we believed they were. We no longer have a responsibility to them as a fellow brother. We now have an evangelistic responsibility to them. Our call is to call them to salvation. Repent. I want to be really, really redundantly clear. This is not an action that says we remove their salvation. We're not undoing their salvation. We're not taking their salvation away. This is the church's declaration that to the best of our understanding, they never knew Christ. There's a greater authority in this duty that we share together as fellow members of the local church. This is that last part of verse 18 to 20. This is an incredibly powerful section that we're going to cover very quickly, but there's incredible potency to what's happening in this section here. Verses 18 to 20 are honestly some of the most abused portions of Scripture by the church. People misunderstand it. They take it completely out of context. This is very important to understand. This is church discipline. In context, I want you to notice how powerful these verses are. The context is church discipline. Listen to verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What's he talking about? The action the corporate church just took. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's church discipline. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Each one of us personally, individually, the yous of Matthew 18, the 12 of them that are there, has a responsibility to hold one another accountable. But we together corporately have an authority as members of the local church. This is an authority bestowed by the Lord to the church. Not to the Pope. Not to church leaders. Not to pastors or elders. To a presbytery or a council of bishops. This is a common duty and authority that we as members of Bethany Baptist Church share together. And if you want to sit there this morning and say, is membership important? Man, this is powerful. Maybe one of the most powerful arguments that I could make toward why we need to seek membership as the local church. Kevin Lehman, in his short little book, Understanding Church Discipline, illustrates it this way. The local church possesses, I'm quoting him, the local church possesses authority in a special, formal kind of way for King Jesus. For instance, you might think of how the, how the Indonesian embassy in Washington can speak for the government of Indonesia more formally than an Indonesian tourist walking the streets of Washington. Similarly, the gathered local church can make official declarations on behalf of heaven in a way that an individual cannot. 
And church discipline depends upon the fact that the gathered church can make official declarations on behalf of Jesus in his rule in heaven. Does that make sense? That illustration clicks with me. This is no trivial matter. This is weighty. This is significant. This is important. It's meaningful. It's practical. This process, this is a process we as a church are commanded to be faithful to. I'm closing right now. It's going to feel really abrupt. Why the topic of church discipline today? Because it's better for us as a local church to build these foundations now than than when we are in the trenches of a situation that requires us to take action. It's better that we have this foundation now. And I, with a completely clear conscience, can tell you, I don't know of anything. I have no knowledge of a situation that's brewing. This is not Brian saying, better get ready because something's coming. I don't know anything like that. But I can also tell you, in my experience, these things come when we don't expect them from people we don't expect in ways that we don't expect. It's important that we understand them and we're not trying to teach through them when when we're in the midst of these trenches. Two application points. First, Is your heart prepared to rightly respond to your brother or sister when they approach you regarding sin that they see in your life? Do you hear that? Church accountability begins with step one. You and him alone. No one else even knows it happens. We're not to be petty. Our goal is to seek sanctification, righteousness, growth in our brother and sister's life to the glory of Jesus Christ. When someone comes to you in a loving, honest, sincere way under the terms of Matthew 18, are you humble and ready to receive that kind of talk? Are you ready for that? Second, are you ready to biblically and lovingly take on this command? given to the membership of this local church. I would pray that we as a local church may never again need to deal with this corporately. I would pray that as we actively are doing this on individual and small scales, that it's happening and no one else even knows it's happening to God be the glory. But whether that's individually or whether you're a witness or whether this is something corporate, Are you ready to take the steps to do what is necessary to the purity of the church, to the glory of Jesus, in a way that is pleasing in his sight out of love in that way? That's our call today.